So in 2017, I was working at this really amazing science institution. And one of the things that I got to do at my job included this outreach program with kids. And part of it was getting these urban public school city kids, you know, into the wilderness and taking them camping. We set up tents and had them camp under the stars. We would set traps and catch snapping turtles. One of the main goals was to be really inspiring and kind of training these young kids of color to, you know, be the next scientists. And it was a small part of my job at that institution, but it was one of my favorite parts of my job there. And yet, you know, not everything was perfect. Because a few weeks after that outdoor trip, a big national tragedy occurred. There's this big demonstration of white supremacists in Charlottesville, Virginia. And things had turned violent when a car was driven into some counter-protesters and someone was killed. The car just plowed through hundreds of people downtown Charlottesville. And I remember the day after walking into work and being really crushed by this and distracted and confused. I sat down in my office and, you know, I looked at the news and I saw that so many like big science institutions were releasing statements saying that racism has no place, you know, in their institutions. And, you know, it's like, it's just words. And yet it offers some like emotional support. And I kept waiting for my institution's statement to pop up. And like the day went on and it never did. And I found myself thinking about those kids that I was just with. And these kids were primarily like black and brown future scientists who might one day work at that institution. And it was during that time I made a personal commitment to unapologetically include social justice advocacy in my science work. And I found myself emailing the president of my institution and demanding that our institution release a statement. And it turned out that there were huge negative consequences for that move I made. It was like all of my credibility of being a wildlife ecologist went out the window in that moment. Like I even had my boss say to me a few days later, you know, you're, you're just so passionate about these issues. Maybe, have you ever thought about just going into social justice advocacy? I mean, I was wildly offended, right? I wasn't passionate about, you know, racism. <laughs> like I wanted it to not exist so that I could do my freaking work and like get on with it. 
My passion was wildlife ecology. The advocacy work is work that I have to do so that I can ultimately do the science that I love. And even though I wish I didn't have to do that kind of work, I'm so glad that I'm not the only one. I'm Dr. Ray Wingrant, and this is a different kind of nature show, a podcast all about the human drama of saving animals. This season, I want to share my story. But I also want to introduce you to the other amazing wildlife scientists out there. Some of my friends who study hyenas, work with lizards, and even track sharks. The animals we study are great, but who we are as people and how that affects our work is just as interesting. And we're going to talk all about it. This is Going Wild. Don't, don't you run from me. Don't you run from me, lizard. This is a YouTube video of my friend, Dr. Erin McGee, doing her favorite thing in the world, catching lizards in the Arizona desert. So what I would do normally is take a picture of the lizard right where it is, and after that, I try to catch the lizard. So let's see if I can get this bad boy, or girl. Could be either one. Erin is a herpetologist, a scientist who studies reptilian and amphibian species like frogs, salamanders, snakes, and Erin's specialty, lizards. Erin's fascination with lizards has made her a bit of a social media star. She has so much fun engaging with her followers on YouTube and Twitter, sharing her love for animals, a love that stretches all the way back to her childhood. When I was a kid, all I wanted to do was hold animals. <laughs> so, like, I just wanted to go out and do research. That's all I still want to do. I just, somebody paid me to go do some research. But for Erin, doing what she loves is not that simple. Because as a Black scientist, she experiences challenges that other scientists, including other herpetologists, don't. So herpetology is, you know, I'm going to just come out and say it, it, and we all know, but it's a predominantly white and male field. I'm definitely a speck of pepper in the sea of salt. Um, <laughs> and so that can be intimidating at times. As much as Erin would love to spend all of her time doing research, collecting data, and capturing lizards in the desert, she doesn't have that luxury. Because being a Black scientist means it's never just about doing the science. Unfortunately, when you're a Black person in non-Black spaces, a lot of the times you do have to be the representative for all Black people. I would rather come in and be like, hey guys, what's up? Let's go out and have a good time. Let's catch some lizards and not even have to worry about that. But I do because... It's something that other people worry about. And this worry is something that Erin has been carrying with her ever since she was a college freshman who just started researching lizards. From day one, she knew that she had to prove herself in this field. I knew that when I was out in the field and it was time to catch the lizards, I was catching all the lizards, okay? Um, <laughs> wasn't nobody catching as many lizards as me. I saw the lizard and I got it. I would do anything. I would scale the size of the, the canyon walls, whatever it took to catch some lizards, I was doing it. And of course, there's going to be mistakes along the way, but I tried to minimize my mistakes as much as possible. 
um, with collecting lizard toes, um, you actually have to kind of like clip them with scissors. And so it can be. Wait, did you just say lizard toes? Yeah. Okay, wait, 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 back all the way up. What are we talking about here with lizard toes and why do they need to be collected? Um, so it's a way of permanently marking the lizards. Okay, so a little backstory here. For her research, Erin needed to collect data on different lizard populations in the Arizona desert where she was conducting her study. So she would go out in the field, catch lizards, jot down their measurements, and then tag them. And for a lot of animals, like the bear's eye study, we'd put tags on them so that we can keep track of them and easily identify them. But lizards are a bit trickier. Because for the ones that we were working with, they were kind of too small for like tags. It would prevent them from getting into their crevices that help with thermal regulation and escaping predators. So herpetologists use a different method for identifying lizards by taking toe clippings. So on the lizard's feet, they have, you know, five toes on each one and each one gets a number. And so each lizard has a unique numerical code for the toes that we take. And so we only take one from each of three feet from the lizard. Then you go in with some little really sharp surgical scissors. And the problem is sometimes when you cut, the toe goes flying. And because you're in nature, you can't find it so you have to be really good at like angling the toe so that way it if it does go flying it goes into your lap versus just out into the air so that was definitely a skill to build right there it didn't take long for Aaron to become an expert toe clipper but there were other things about the field that she couldn't get used to My first field summer, I was like 18, and that's when I was going out to catch lizards for the first time, and and my undergraduate advisor was explaining it to me, and he kept being like, yeah, we're going to noose these lizards and this and the other, and I'm just like, this doesn't quite, (laughs) this doesn't really sit well with me. We're going to noose these lizards. Noosing is the long-standing term used in herpetology for catching lizards. To catch a lizard, you use this tool that's basically a fishing pole with a small loop at the end. And when you find a lizard, you put the loop around the lizard's head and shoulder area, then pull to tighten the loop. As Erin continued in this field, she was exposed to this word, noosing, everywhere. In like scientific papers and stuff like that, people talking about it on social media, It is a very much common and accepted word. But as a Black person, this term is really disturbing. Every time Erin heard the word, it called to mind horrific lynchings of Black people and other people of color throughout history. So having the word noosing being thrown around so casually like that is very triggering. It makes me uncomfortable as a Black woman where I'm in the field, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle of nowhere with no service and, you know, all these white people are talking about noosing things. But there was no way for Aaron to escape it. Would you say that you ever used that word noosing? Yes, I have. Because that was what was expected. That was the traditional term. And I definitely wanted to fit in. And despite it making me uncomfortable, I did what I had to to get by and to do the work that I love to do. 
For a long time, Erin concealed how she felt about the word because she didn't feel safe enough to raise this issue with anyone, even with her own advisor. What she did know was that none of her peers seemed to have an issue with saying noosing. And as a speck of pepper in a sea of salt, Erin didn't want to rock the boat. I already knew what was expected of me. And so, one, I wanted to keep doing what I was doing and I didn't want it to get kicked out. And two, I didn't want to ruin it for anybody else coming in behind me. So Erin focused her energy on her research so she could excel in her field. But the weariness kept eating at her. Erin couldn't let it go. I made a mental note and I just kind of try to figure out how was the best way to to navigate it over time. Mm -hmm. But eventually, Erin couldn't keep her feelings buried. And we'll find out what happens when she begins to stir things up in the herpetology community after the break. Despite the challenges she faced as a young scientist and one of the few Black herpetologists in her field, Erin had a lot going for her. Erin decided to go get her PhD and continue to do what she loves most, doing research. And what Erin aims to tackle with her research are the seemingly simple questions that most people overlook. I just assumed that they were all answered, and that's not the case There's a whole lot that you can contribute just by asking simple questions. It does not have to be complicated. So for my dissertation, I ended up asking the question, what do lizards eat? You'd think we'd already know the answer to this question. But Erin discovered that when it comes to some of the small lizard species in the southwestern United States, scientists really don't have a clear idea of what kinds of insects they eat. So Erin decided she was going to find out. But in the process of doing this diet study, Erin once again encountered some long-standing practices that she began to question. There are a couple methods that herpetologists traditionally use to figure out what lizards eat, and they involve looking at a lizard's stomach contents. Gut pumping, which is like flushing water down their throats to get them to throw up whatever they ate, or like euthanizing the lizards and then cutting their stomachs open. Even though these practices are considered standard, Erin didn't feel good about doing these things to lizards for her own study. She thought, why are we pumping their guts and cutting them open? I was like, okay, what can I do that is least invasive and does not kill the animal? And then Erin thought about the lizard toes. Remember those? The tiny toe clippings she'd been collecting all these years. I started to get the idea for like stable isotopes and I was looking for... Like, how can I get the stable isotope data from the lizards? And I was like, well, we're already cutting toes. So if the toes work, then that is a a two for one, essentially. So instead of looking at stomach contents, Erin was going to use her lizard toe clippings. And she was going to run what's called a stable isotope analysis on them. It's a pretty complicated process, but it's basically a way to measure the presence of certain elements that are found in animals' bones or teeth. And once you have this data, you can find out all kinds of things about an animal, like what kind of environment an animal lived in, or in this case, what did it eat? Essentially, 
It's like when you're eating Cheetos and you get that Cheeto dust on your hands. We're looking to see if the lizards have Cheeto dust on their hands. Erin was able to successfully use the toe clippings for her diet study. And the best part? She was able to minimize the harm done to lizards. Erin was proud of herself for sticking to her guns and changing her own scientific practices to align with her values. She realized she didn't have to follow convention just because that's how things are done. She could question things and offer her own solutions. This really gave her a sense of pride in her own role as a scientist. And so Erin began to question other things in the field. Because even now, in the middle of her PhD, there was still that one thing that kept eating at her. That word noosing that she learned years ago as an undergrad, she still found it disturbing whenever she encountered it. But now Erin felt like she had a lot more people on her side. For whatever reason, the following and the community that I've built on Twitter has just been phenomenal. Over the years while she was studying lizards, Erin was also building a community for herself on social media and connecting with other Black scientists online, like me. Erin and I were friends on social media before we became friends in real life. Having these kinds of connections online made Erin feel less isolated in her field, it also gave her a chance to have meaningful conversations about social justice. As I started to learn more and, and gain the actual vocabulary to express the way that that made me feel, that is when I kind of started to want to have some of the more of those big and you know more nuanced conversation about this word and where does it come from and why are we using it? When Erin first heard the term noosing lizards as a college freshman, it made her uneasy, but she didn't really know how to talk about it. Not only was she new to the field, she also stood out in this super white environment, so the risk of bringing it up did not feel worth it. But now, here she was, a scientist with years of experience and getting a PhD, for God's sake. And then it got to a point where I was like, you know what, I feel like I have enough community here where I can start having this conversation and it will be something mean meaningful. So one day in April of 2019, Erin decided that she was ready to tell the world how she really felt. And so she jumped on Twitter. To my hurt people, I am very deliberately using the word lasso over noose. Because as a very black person, the word noose and the action being described as noosing by white people has always made me very uncomfortable due to the past and recent history. Think about it. I mean, this was a big deal. Not just for Aaron, but for the herpetology field as a whole. Aaron wasn't simply asking her fellow scientists to change this single word. She was confronting them with a blind spot that the herpetology field had missed all of these years. And understandably, Aaron was both relieved and nervous. Did you expect any pushback? Absolutely. People hold on to the things that they call, you know, their traditions and things like that. And so that was a it was a very much an established word. So I did expect for there to be some pushback, but I was also prepared in that. 
Erin had had a lot of time to think about this issue, so she knew going in that she wanted to propose an alternative term for catching lizards. She considered terms like fishing or snaring and even looping. But in the end, she landed on the word lasso. I thought about going to like the rodeo and stuff like that. Like, you know, you could lasso the cow and and like I just thought that that was a word that just had some more positive connotations to it. And on top of that, she anticipated people arguing against changing such an established term. So she had her arguments ready. I'm just like, well, one, this is just not a a happy term in general. Maybe we can think of a more inclusive word. If you just want to get, you know, a lay person, somebody who has no background in science or kids or something like that, you want to have language that is friendly to them as well. And two, it's not accurate to what we're doing. We are not catching them and hanging them. We are going out, catching them, collecting data and letting them go. And you know what? Despite some initial pushback, a lot of people were actually pretty excited about Aaron's idea. People started to, like, really respond and engage in conversation with me. And I was just like, well, I'm going to push this as far as I can get it to go. And we'll see what happens from there. Because as Erin learned from this field, where she spent so much time paying attention to the small things, from lizards and their toe clippings to the tiny insects they eat, Erin grew to appreciate how much small things can really impact the health of the larger ecosystem. In the grand scheme of things, is it a really big deal? The word itself, where we're just looking at it, probably not. And that's the beauty of it. It's not a big deal. So when people are saying, yeah, I believe that we should have more diversity and inclusion. All right, cool. Do this one thing. This one thing that is not a big deal. And it weeds out the people who are really about doing diversity and inclusion work and those who are not. The hope is that they will continue to make small changes and small changes until all those small changes become bigger changes and they think more critically, okay, so I have this, you know, non-white student, how can I better my lab to make it more inclusive to them so that way they feel welcome and they continue on through the program. Erin was serious about this. She started becoming more and more vocal about making the herpetology field more inclusive beyond that one initial tweet. And I think back to that day in my office after the Charlottesville attack, when I decided that advocacy needed to be part of the science work that I do. And I realized that for Erin, standing up against this noosing problem was that moment for her. Because from that point on, Erin was fully committed to making advocacy a part of her work. And like me, Erin had to face consequences for that decision. Did you ever feel like there were some risks involved in that, like a professional cost to you or a social risk? Absolutely. Um, In academia, it's very much a thing about who you know as much as it is about what you know. You have to rely on the community to get grants and to get funding. And I knew that if I was coming up here starting a ruckus, that people could be like, oh, she's a troublemaker. We don't want to work with her. Or like if I'm applying for grants and they see my name and they'd be like, oh, well, she's not a real herpetologist. She wants to 
do this, that, and the other to change the field. And that's just not what we do. Um, So like there was definitely a concern. And this concern of not being taken seriously as a scientist is not an exaggeration. I mean, I can speak from my own experience here. After the Charlottesville attack, I started speaking up more openly about racism and inequity in my science institution. And I began losing the respect of my colleagues. They stopped seeing me as a scientist and only saw me as the social justice girl. And in the end, I felt like I had no choice but to leave my dream job. So Erin is not paranoid for worrying about these things, especially as she became more vocal and got more involved in advocacy work, because dedicating time to do advocacy work meant that Erin had less time to do her scientific research. As she was working on the lizard diet study for her dissertation, Erin was also mentoring graduate students of color doing conservation work. And even though she truly loved working and engaging with other people of color who were interested in nature, science, and animals, sometimes the pressure of being a real scientist still got to her. I want to be seen as a scientist because that's who I am. That's what I am doing. Sometimes I'd be like, well, I, sh- I shouldn't even be doing this work. I should just be doing pure ecology stuff. So that way I don't get written off as, you know, a non-scientist. I'm just somebody doing advocacy and that type of thing. So Erin works extra hard to make sure that people don't discount her scientific work. Whenever she's asked to give talks about her advocacy work at conferences, she makes sure to put her research front and center. I'm like... This is the science that I did. But while I was doing this science, I was also doing this other stuff because y'all could never, y'all could never do all of the things that I was doing. So I just need you to understand that I did the advocacy stuff on top of the science. Although I do have some education in the social sciences things, I'm I'm an ecologist. I want to do science and just do the science like y'all do. It is a flex that I'm able to do everything that I'm able to do, but also I shouldn't have to, but I do because I'm one of few Black women in herpetology and ecology. Erin feels that the advocacy work she's doing is not optional. I think that doing this advocacy work is also a part of the science in a sense. So like, When I say that I don't get to focus on science 100% of the time, I mean focus on the thing that the academy think of as being valuable. No matter who you are and no matter how apolitical you think you are, your culture, your upbringing, your background dictates the kinds of questions that you ask, dictates the kind of hypotheses that you make dictates all of the science that you do. And that is why it's important to have more diversity, because if we can bring in people who have different backgrounds and cultures, we can start asking a whole bunch more questions and start thinking about, you know, different ways of going about finding answers and doing experiments and stuff like that. So for me, everything that I do is science, but I know that not everybody sees it like that. And that's really unfortunate, because working to change the way we do science shouldn't be optional for anyone, because Black scientists shouldn't be the only ones doing this work. I wanted my life to be better in this field, and I also wanted the lives of other people to be better, and so it made taking those risks worth it. 
And you know what? It is worth it. Because thanks to her efforts, Erin is starting to see small changes in her field. The term lassoing is starting to catch on. So there hasn't been any formal change, but I have had people who are like professors or like doing research and stuff telling me like, yes, we're starting to use this term in our own like papers and stuff like that. So once it starts getting into peer reviewed research, that's when other people are really going to be able to be like, hey, what's going on here? Why are you making this change? What's going on? Erin sees this as a super hopeful sign. Because even without a formal change, the more scientists who adopt this new terminology, the more it'll spread and enter the vernacular. But switching to the word lasso in scientific papers is just a start. I even have my own undergraduate advisor. He's using lasso now. And so, like, he's been a herpetologist for, you know, like the last 40-something years. This is the same professor who had introduced Aaron to the word noosing in the first place. And now he's adopting the word lasso. This was an amazing full circle moment for Aaron. It felt pretty good. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, I, I definitely uh, felt like, yeah, I, I did something here. And Aaron is hopeful because more changes are coming. So there's always going to be work left to do. But I have seen someone recently use the word noose in a tweet to describe what they are doing. And somebody was like, oh, we're not using that word anymore. We're using this one instead. So um, it is definitely, you know, it is making its way. It is, it is, the journey is not complete as of yet, but I didn't expect it to be either. Like the whole point was to get people thinking and now they are. More than just thinking about it, people in the field are actually starting to make this one very small change. And when you start small, that gives you the courage to go on to bigger and bigger things. Lassoed. Lassoed a lizard. You just listened to Going Wild with Dr. Ray Wynn Grant. If you want to support us, you can follow Going Wild on your favorite podcast listening app. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get updates and bonus content by following me, Dr. Ray Wynn Grant, and PBS Nature on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. And you can catch new episodes of Nature Wednesdays at 8, 7 central on PBS, pbs.org slash nature, and the PBS video app. This episode of Going Wild was hosted by me, Dr. Raywin Grant. Production by Caroline Hadilaxano, Danielle Broza, Nathan Toby, and Great Feeling Studios. Editing by Rachel Aronoff and Jacob Lewis. Sound design by Cariad Harmon. Danielle Broza is the digital lead, and Fred Kaufman is the executive producer for Nature. Art for this podcast was created by Ariana Bowlers and Karen Brazell. Special thanks to Amanda Schmidt, Blanche Robertson, Jane Lisi, Chelsea Satkamp, and Karen Ho. Going Wild is a new podcast by PBS Nature. Nature is an award-winning series created by the WNET Group and made possible by all of you. Funding for this podcast was provided by grants from the Anderson Family Fund, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and PBS. PBS.